Welcome to Insight Aviation, helping you to take a look inside the world of captains, aerospace professionals, air traffic controllers, and much more. Learn how they got started, where they are now, and their advice for aspiring aviators. This series is brought to you by Wayman Aviation Academy. Learn to fly with a safe, reliable, professional academy. Located between Miami and Fort Lauderdale in sunny South Florida, USA. Enjoy the training and cosmopolitan life with Wayman's 42 aircraft, six airline partners, and two bases to help you be the captain. Welcome, welcome everybody to a special interview of Insight Aviation. Uh, today I'm very happy to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Tim Sutton, a B-2 stealth bomber pilot, former F-15 pilot. Uh, Tim, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, thanks for having me, glad to be here. Uh, yeah, like you said, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Sutton, I'm currently stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, about an hour east of Kansas City. At Whiteman Air Force Base, we have the B base, we have the B-2 stealth bomber, and that's what I fly. And I also fly T-38s on the side to help increase our hours. And I've been here about 10 years off or on <clears throat> with my wife and four kids. Congratulations. That's uh, quite a way to make a living. And it's really interesting because you reached out to me. Uh, not that long ago, honestly, and um, we on this on this podcast, this uh, YouTube, wherever you might be watching this, we've mostly focused on commercial aviation. So I was really interested, just to kind of you know, as we have this conversation, to find out more about the Air Force, you know, how they recruit, how they train their pilots, and what it's like to actually you know be an Air Force pilot, which we'll get into uh, uh, you know as we go through this uh, interview. Now, for everyone that's watching, whether in the Zoom on our Facebook Live or on our YouTube channel, please take a moment to write in the comments or in the chat where you're from. We love to know where you're from because that gives us a better idea of uh, how to answer your questions and, and where to take them. Um, whether it's in the comments or in the chat, please let us know where you are. So I always like to know, Tim, right at the beginning, how did you get interested in aviation? Okay, my story isn't all that exciting because really what got me into aviation was my brother who was nine years older than me. And he was one of those that was passionate about aviation from a young age. And he had 10 posters uh, plastered against the wall of fighter aircraft and all kinds of aircraft from the military and uh, loved going to air shows. So he introduced me to the concept. And then uh, for myself, I loved sports. I love uh, competition. And I love roller coasters. And I thought it'd be really cool to fly fighters and go upside down and shoot things. And so let's give this thing a try in the Air Force. That's excellent. All right. So yeah, the, the big influence of, of siblings, of parents. Uh, I find there's generally two kinds of people in the world of aviation. People that had kind of like aviation exposure through their family. And there's people who just kind of out of nowhere, you know, just always loved airplanes and kind of went in that direction. Um, and I would say it is interesting then, too, we did not come from a background, per se, like that, either for the military or aviation. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it's not a large military area, so there's not a lot of familiarity with the military. And uh, so in this case, my brother was able to do that and got the bug, got the passion because of something he saw from a young age, even though he didn't come from that environment. So a little bit of both, a little bit of both. And is he still in the world of aviation? He's not now. He retired from the Air Force after 20 years and now works for a uh, defense contractor helping design and sell aircraft and other systems. Nice. So he's still uh, very much in the aviation industry and, and spent a career in the Air Force as well. Very nice. Yes. That's great, great. So um, it's kind of funny you mentioned early on um, like a, liking roller coasters because I actually did um, some aerobatic extra 300 training a couple of years ago 
And the place that I went to kind of sold it. That's out of Vegas. I can't remember what they were called, but they build it as a roller coaster without rails, <laughs> right? So uh, when when I went for a ride, he's like, "Oh, real pilot. Okay, let's let's kind of like show you how we do it instead of just taking you along for a ride." Um, and I gotta imagine there's nothing quite like being in an F-15 and uh, and hearing those turbines roar, right, pushing it around. My first flight. Uh, was uh, incentive flight in a fighter was before I went to pilot training. I had a flight in the backseat of an F-16. Nice. And, uh, you know, this is a totally new world. We have our human pink bodies haven't experienced this type of thing growing up. You, you know what I mean? It's totally foreign to us as biped humans. And uh, <clears throat> I got in the back of the F-16, not knowing what this future would be for me. And we did dogfighting 1v1. And I just remember sitting back there giggling, going, it's everything I thought it would be. This is so cool. I'm going upside down and turning against this guy. So clearly you kind of had a, an entrance into the Air Force through your brother. Was there much recruiting or was it just kind of like you showed up to the office and ready to go? Uh, recruiting from the Air Force's perspective, there was uh, there not was not involved. It was me knowing that uh, this looks like a cool path for me. So I went out and looked for the ways to apply to get into the Air Force as an officer. Now, to give a little bit of background on, if you don't mind, on some basic academics on the military then, um, coming from Pittsburgh, we had such little exposure to the military that some of the most basic things I didn't understand. So I'll throw out a couple things at the risk of insulting those who do know. The military is divided up into officers and enlisted. And enlisted are those who go to war and fight, right? You think like 300, two or 300 years ago with Napoleon or 2,000 years ago with the Spartans. You have a whole bunch of guys that go fight. And who are you going to get to go fight? You're going to need a whole bunch of young guys because they're more fit. You want guys because they have more muscle mass and they tend to not think as much before they go do silly and daring things. Right. And, and guys without families. So those were your soldiers. Mm-hmm. And those were that's what those are enlisted. And now you need a few more educated cerebral types to lead them. And those are your officers. In the Air Force, however, uh, our officers are actually those who are pilots. So to become an officer in the military, to be a pilot in the Air Force, you need to be an officer. And to become an officer, you have to have a degree and some officer training. So the three basic ways to do that are the Air Force Academy, which is a four-year college where you march and wear a uniform and learn your military customs while you're going to college. Or you can go to the college of your choice and attend Air Force ROTC, which is a couple classes and some training while you're in college. And then finally, if you already have your college degree, you can go to officer training school. So for me, I had to go out and uh, search on the internet or wherever to find out how to apply to those means. And which one of those three routes did did you follow? In my case, uh, my brother went to the Air Force Academy and I actually got accepted to the Air Force Academy, but I chose to go to ROTC instead uh, so that I could go to the college of my choice. Excellent. Uh, Mask, where did you go to college? Yeah, Cedarville University is a small school near Dayton, Ohio. Has about 3,000 students and has a really solid engineering program. So that really worked for me. Well, Dayton's a big Air Force. It's got the Air Force Museum there. It's a big, beautiful museum. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real perk having that nearby during college and ROTC. A lot of cool things to see there. My wife's from the Cleveland area, um, uh, Akron, Cleveland area. So big drives up from Florida there. I had made a point. Like we had to stop in Dayton, the right right memorial, right factory, and uh, the Air Force Museum which just blew me away. Four huge hangars filled with everything. There's like an old, a whole Air Force One wing. Uh, it was really interesting. Yeah, really, really is. One of my favorites to see there is the XB-70, which is designed to be a supersonic long-range strategic bomber in World War 
I'm sorry, in the Cold War, should we need to against the Soviet Union? And we actually canceled that program because we got a hold of a MiG-25 from the Soviet Union and really realized it wasn't quite as good as we thought it might be. So we canceled the program to save money. They also have, um, if you want to see the B-2, they have kind of a B-2 there. It's not really a B-2 because it was oh, never intended to fly. It doesn't have engines, doesn't have avionics, oh. but it's a frame that they built to test strength and such. So you can get a oh. glimpse of that if you go there. That was it. All right, great. Yeah, I remember that. And they had like two SR-71s, which blew my head that they had not one, but two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great museum, great place. Uh, I highly recommend it to anybody that, that's watching there to, to visit Dayton, Ohio and check out that Air Force Museum. Um, so we're coming back to your training, right? So you, you go to college and you join the ROTC program, which is really interesting because one of our uh, one of our favorite uh, schools down here in the Florida area is Florida Memorial University. And they've historically had a great uh, Air Force ROTC program and students have gone through it. We've had a chance to work with some of them. Uh, actually, shout out right now to uh, Malcolm, if you're watching, who got his private pilot license with us so that he could then apply to the Air Force Academy and have that leg up. Uh, but I don't recall what his route was. It wasn't ROTC. He, he already had a college degree. He was getting his pilot's license so that he could apply, I guess, for officer training. That's the other yeah, route. OTS, officer training school. It's about a three-month school that you go to if you already have your degree. Ah, that's not bad. And is it pretty even recruiting across those three branches? Or, you know, I imagine the academy, of course, is probably a main one. Yeah, typically in, in many years ago, <clears throat> you would, um, it was so competitive to become a pilot that you would increase your chances of becoming a pilot in the Air Force by going to the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. uh, however, these days, I believe they, they need pilots enough that if you're doing well in your grades and performing well, you have a great chance to become a pilot from any of those avenues, commissioning sources. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I remember it was very exciting when he got a septic because you know, the whole school was cheering for him. <laughs> he was a good guy, you know, working at, as many people do, part-time, flying here, stops and starts for like two, three uh, years, something like that. Uh, wow. But, uh, you know, uh, it's nice to find a young person that has that clarity of vision of what they want and is so dedicated to it, you know, to work a job, save it up, go in like an hour, a flight time at, at a time to get there. So very nice. Uh, and you, uh, you said you majored in engineering in Cedarville? Yes, mechanical engineering. And uh, that helps you as well. They tend to prefer those with a technical degree. Mm -hmm. But I have also had friends with political science and history degrees who became fighter pilots. Interesting. In the commercial world, we kind of joke that um, you don't really need a degree to, to start your, your career. But if you want to go for the majors, you need a degree in anything, even basket, underwater basket weaving, right? This right. is code that you can put in the time and the effort to get a degree. Um, that's right. That, so that's really interesting. So I always liked that idea. When I was young and, um, you know, kind of deciding where, uh, what direction I was going to go, I, the Air Force was really the only one of the branches that I took. Because, you know, I'm a flying family. My father's a pilot. My brother's a pilot. And so the Air Force really loomed there. I didn't have the military in me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went an entirely different route, actually. But I always thought that was very interesting that everyone in the Air Force is an officer. Um, everyone has to have that kind of college experience. And if you think about it, the job is working with some of the most advanced, complicated things that humanity has ever built, right? So you need a highly educated uh, pilot force uh, or soldier, right? To be able to, to control something like what you're flying, uh, the B-2, right? The kind of crowning achievement of uh, military engineering. Yeah, that's right. And now, of course, if you aren't, you know, for those with other paths in life that flying is a hobby for something like that, 
<clears throat> not everybody in the Air Force is an officer. All the pilots are officers. And of course, if you want to be a maintenance uh, mechanic, you like working with your hands, anything like that, you can be enlisted as well. You can be, uh, you can be a, a, a dental technician. You can be in finance. There's so many things you can do in the Air Force as enlisted or, or lead those organizations as an officer. But yeah, all the uh, pilots are officers as well. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Now that I think about it, I met somebody years ago at a, a seminar for something or other uh, who said he was in the Air Force. I'm like, really, what do you do in the Air Force? He's a plumber. I was like, yeah. they need everything, <laughs> right? They need electricians, mechanics, administration, all those kind of things, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, just a quick sideline for those that are joining us um, uh, directly in the Zoom. This is a little bit of a different Zoom. It's a, a webinar Zoom. So we have a functionality here for Q&A at the bottom of the screen. And for anyone watching us on Facebook, please share your questions here for Lieutenant Colonel Tim Sutton. Uh, towards the end of our interview, we'll have an opportunity for questions and answers. If you have anything particularly you want to ask, and as always, let us know where you are. Um, so coming back to it, so you're there, you enroll, you know what you're doing because you're in the ROTC program in Ohio. Did you choose Dayton because of its connection with uh, the Air Force? No, like I said, in ROTC, you can go to any call, almost any college across the country. And that, that's not too far from my home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My sister blazed the trail for that and went to Cedarville ahead of me. And it, um, I was interested in going to Christian school as well. And uh, it was just convenient that it happened to be near Wright-Pat Air Force Base. Sure. And now we're at ROTC. You don't know what your job is going to be yet. So you start off ROTC for your uh, four or maybe a three-year program, not knowing that you'll be a pilot just yet. And you'll have to compete for that. Sure. <clears throat> so you could come out of ROTC as an acquisitions officer, a lawyer or something like that. But, you, um, but hopefully you compete and get a pilot slot. And then you'll go off and get commissioned. Now you're officially in the Air Force as an officer. And then you go off to pilot training for a year where you get your wings. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. So you go through a four-year program. Were you were you flying at all during college or you didn't do any flying until you got to the, the flight academy? I did just a little bit. I did four hours in a Cessna because <laughs> I wanted to, I didn't know the whole scoop. And for the most part, they teach you everything you need to know. Although they will send you to get your private license before they send you to pilot training, I, and I, uh, they may have just that a little bit. They will give you some private training ahead of time to make sure to make sure that you can handle at least a little bit of the aviation. Sure. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I had some experience on my resume. And as you can imagine, anything in life that you can pursue more of, um, be, make yourself better at, get experience in, it's going to set you up much better in the future. I agree. I agree. I agree. So a couple of hours, four hours in a Cessna there, uh, mm -hmm. just kind of seeing if you can handle it, right? And I encourage anyone that's interested in a career in aviation, no matter what level, go to your local airport, local flight school, and get a discovery flight. In, in that one-hour flight, you're going to know if you love it or hate it, right? Some people love the idea of being a pilot, and then they get into a 152 or a 172, and they're like, oh, it's a little bit smaller than I thought. Like, you know, well, like, how do you control the jets on this thing? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I mean, and then of course, if you come out of it with a smile, you really don't want to do anything else. <laughs> That's really great. Right. Go for that. So Although there are some there are some individuals though that toughed it out even when they didn't quite. They, there was a mixed smile because they get air sick. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were still determined, and they went through training to fight their air sickness, which is incredibly. They had the stamina to to go through that. Yeah, you know, we've had some great people. Uh, I can think of one gentleman from Venezuela who was wonderful. Never got over his motion sickness. He got to, he, his intention was to become a professional pilot through our professional pilot program. 
uh, got to his private and said, okay, that's it for me. Got my private. I haven't been able to get over this uh, motion sickness. He went home with his private pilot license. But if you want to work anywhere in the world of aviation, whether it's airport management or things like that, even having a private pilot license, that line on your resume just shows your, uh, you know, applying for more than a job. You have a true interest in aviation and something you want to pursue. Um, but then you, uh, so you took that little bit of experience, your college education, ROTC, and did you go to uh, the Flight Academy in Colorado? Yeah, so United States Air Force Academy in Colorado is the military academy for the Air Force. Like I said, it is a four-year college, okay. uh, but it is also a military academy. So you wear a uniform and make your bed real tight and learn about military customs and courtesies. So that is not a flight academy. Ah. That is just the military academy to become an officer in the military. Okay. <laughs> once you're in the military, once you once you have completed your Air Force Academy four-year degree, or completed your ROTC training at your the university that you've been in, or completed officer training school after getting your degree, uh, then you are now in the military commissioned as an officer. Then from there you'll get your first assignment, and usually that first assignment then is to flight training to your to your flight academy, if you will. And the Air Force has four bases for flight to pilot training in Mississippi, two in Texas, and one in Oklahoma. And then that is a 13-month course to get your wings as a pilot in the Air Force. Nice. So what's the kind of equipment you learn on uh, at one of those bases? I learned on the T-37 and the T-38. The T-37, including the actual T-37s that I flew, was designed and built in the 1950s. Sure. They have since retired it. If you go to the Air Force Museum, check it out and look at how old it is. And you say, I know a guy that flew that thing. Very nice. Uh, I actually just t- met somebody that privately owns one. Uh, I oh, met him okay. at Boca. Uh, shout out to uh, the Wings and Wheels fashion event that we, that they did a few weeks ago. A beautiful t- blue T-37. Keeps it in excellent shape. JD out there. He does like spin training and aerobatic work in it. And what a beautiful plane. I looked at it. At, at first, I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, I couldn't quite <laughs> make out what it was. But what an interesting plane. And now they've replaced that with a T-6. It's a single-engine propeller aircraft. Uh, Maybe more fun to fly because it's got a better power, you know, to weight ratio. And uh, so now the first half of pilot training is the T-6. Then you'll track select from there to either go to the T-1, which is if you're going to go more towards a heavy aircraft, cargo type of aircraft, you go to the T-1 for the second half of pilot training. Or if you're directed more towards fighters, you'll go to the T-38, which is a pointy-nosed two-engine afterburning aircraft. Very nice. Is that like the L-38, the Albatross? <clears throat> no, no. Uh, very different from the L-38, although the T-38 does have a version called the F-5 that some ah. countries use as a fighter where they uh, added a gun and some missiles. Yes, I just looked it up here on the side. window. beautiful plane. I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to insert those images after post-production. Yeah, really yeah. yeah it's, I always find it really interesting how the military has its own designations for what might otherwise be civilian airplanes. Like uh, like the 737 is, uh, was it the KC-135? I'm getting this wrong. Uh, KC- yeah, the KC-135 is a Boeing 707 airframe. 707. Yeah. yeah, so we have a handful of different aircraft that all were developed from the Boeing 707. Sure. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so flight school is 13 months, right? Do, do you have something similar to like the traditional private instrument commercial, or is it something entirely different? Uh, it starts off similar. And some people have said, you know, what makes pilot training so hard? And a couple of things are the standardization that they expect of you and the level of performance. Some of it is the timing. You know, you can take your time getting your private license if you so choose and get it in a few years. 
in, in, in 100 hours instead of 45. But we would do an introductory phase where we solo in a few sorties. And then we would also do formation. We'd also do low level. Uh, so some of those. So we had our basic contact and aircraft handling phase, our basic instrument phase. But then you introduce some other things that are unique to the military. That's going to be true. I have to admit, I haven't done a lot of formation flying. And uh, I think I, I did one where we had a photo shoot. And the entire time, I'm like, they're too close. They're too close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It can be nerve-wracking, especially early on. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And low altitude. That makes sense because you're doing a lot of kind of like runs. Like, What do you mean by low altitude? Are we talking about like lower than 500 feet? Like, Yeah, my training was 500 feet. And then it depends on what aircraft you're in. So uh, the A-10s, they may get down as low as 300 or 200 feet above the ground. And now keep in mind, too, when we're at 500 feet, we're going 350 knots. You yeah. know, and the A-10s, they may be doing 200 or 250 knots. And the F-111, uh, it flew low level back in the day. And, of course, it was going much closer to the Mach than wow. either of us. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's got to be pretty exhilarating to be uh, just seeing everything go by as you're low level. So these training stories, is it what is I've heard this before, that you had to solo in the Air Force by, like, I think, 10 hours or... 15 hours, something like that, or that's in the ballpark. I think it was 10 or under. Yes. 10 or under. You weren't going to make it. That's funny because the, and is that something that still holds probably an initial private pilot 10 hours or under? Oh, as a private pilot, you're saying, well, I mean, no, as a, when you're doing your, your, your private prior to flight school in the air force. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I don't know what the current, I don't honestly know what the current policy is, but yeah, they have a program like I described that where they do expect you to get to a certain point within a certain number of hours to show you can handle the pace. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That's, you know, the private pilot, I always say that first chapter is the one that kind of separates who's going to become a, a professional pilot. Not only is it literally your first pilot license, right? But people come into that first chapter from a wide variety of backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. Physically, the ability to study, yeah. uh, grit, all these kind of things. People come from a really wide variety of backgrounds and, that initial license is your standardization. Like if you can make it through this, you'll very likely succeed through instrument and commercial. Right. right. I yes. think the numbers are less than 50% of private pilots complete or student pilots complete their private pilot license. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's the pyramid, but then it actually gets much better uh, instrument and commercial and forward. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, like you said, there's different types of people out there. So you might have somebody who is a star academically and a star in sports but somehow they just didn't quite have the hands or it could be the other way around. They were great with their hands, but they couldn't keep up academically, mm-hmm. but they go on to do great things in other, in other areas of life. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Uh, we always say, and I forget who told me this originally, but for every person in the cockpit, there's 50 jobs in support, right? right. Everything from maintenance, fueling or traffic controllers and all those things. So there's plenty of ways to kind of develop that passion for aviation that might not be in the cockpit. Um, right. So, Coming back to that initial training, um, what are some 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 things that might be different? So, for example, this 10-hour minimum that I mentioned, the trend in the commercial aviation industry is actually to push the solo farther back, right? So you go to academies like ours, and your solos are rarely below 20 hours, and often in the curriculum kind of push into 30 hours, right? We do a lot of stuff to get that student ready so that when they solo, well, there's very little risk of you know, it's a risk, it's a risk reward kind of a situation where we want them to have, uh, you know, a win very early on in their training, right? But you want to mitigate as little risk as possible. Right. So 
while an independent instructor might get somebody out there soloed in under 10 hours, at academies, you'll rarely see it below 20 or 30 hours. But the student right. is, you know, there's a world of difference between a 20, 30 hour pilot and a 10 hour pilot. Literally three times as much experience. <laughs> right. And I think that, uh, <clears throat> I think that's one thing the Air Force does pretty well is the standardization and expectations in their training. If you go to a civilian, any any old civilian FBO and get an instructor, you there's a large spectrum of the types of instructors you can get from polished and professional to uh, not quite as polished and professional. Sure. And military, they're very good at the structure on memorizing boldface, which is you will know verbatim. Uh, and when you write, you have to write it down every week, the boldface, which is the measures you take for certain emergencies. And you have to know, you have to get every period and dash correct or you fail. And the expectations are so clear cut and the structure is so clear that uh, that the information and the habit patterns are drilled into you much faster than if you don't have that type of structure. And um, and, and then the and then that makes the measurements of your performance more clear cut as well, because you will be able to do this in this way two times or so before we clear you to go solo. And I think that's something it's a skill to learn and a skill that all pilots have, right? So I'm, I'm saying the, the Air Force is really good at this and maybe takes it to another level, but it's a skill that all pilots need to develop. And it's that it's that ability to treat treat things uh, very structured, very disciplined and, and, uh, and accomplish it in that way. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, so let's step forward a little bit. You've got your wings. Uh, was your first assignment the F-15 squadron or something else? Yes. Yeah. So out of pilot training, I was uh, assigned to F-15Cs. F-15C Eagle is a two-engine, two-tail fighter that uh, is all air-to-air. So we don't do air-to-ground. So that F-16 flight I told you about back uh, back originally when we dog did dogfighting, or as we call it, BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, really sold me on the air-to-air mission. And right. so I went to F-15C. Our training was at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. And I did that for, I'm sorry, before I went there, I went to Introduction of Fighter Fundamentals. So that was another four-month training in the T-38, where we learned the basics of air-to-air fighting to prepare us for the F-15. Then we went to the F-15 training, which was another seven months. After that seven months of training, now I'm officially an F-15C pilot. I went to my first assignment in Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho to fly the F-15C for three years. Nice. Um, So only three years? And then you made the move over to B2? What, what prompted that? Yeah, well, assignments in the military are commonly about three years. So you move from one assignment to another. And they just like to move people around to spread knowledge and, and not let people get stagnant. And I actually went from that job. Instead of doing another flying job, I went to a desk job working in a command center in Hawaii. And after I did three years at a desk, then I applied to the B-2 and I came to the B-2 then in 2010. So I had about three years in the F-15, three years at a desk, and then came to the B-2. All right. So tell us about that because it's, of course, it's, it's, it's the shadow, right? It's uh, this, uh, this kind of a elusive airplane, which you don't see very much. You might see it out at an air show. They're all based in Missouri, if I understand that correctly, right? And so all missions begin in Missouri? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, was- so there's, yeah, there's only, yeah, there's only twenty of them. There were twenty one. We lost one in Guam in two thousand eight. But yeah, it's super cool. If you get a chance to see it, <clears throat> you're right. They're not out there too often. And uh, the flight path, coincidentally, on on depending on the winds, well, flight path will take the B twos over our house. And even though I've flown them for ten years, I still run outside <laughs> with my kids. Or if they're in bed, I run outside by myself to watch it fly over because it looks so cool. 
Yeah. And we were supposed to build 120 of them. Uh, but then the save money and the Cold War kind of ended. So we let's save money and just make 20, 21 of them. Um, but yeah, it, it was really an honor and super cool to get to see one, to get to see one up close. Uh, you can see them in the museum, uh, obviously you too, but it's much cooler if you can see it overhead. Very close. Uh, yeah. And then the training for that was about six months also. Uh, and yeah, the first flight, much different than fighters, right? So fighters, I told you, I like sports. I like roller coasters. It's, it's an active event, like playing basketball where you, it's you versus somebody else. The B2 is not, it's a little less maneuverable and a little slower than an airliner. So it's a different type of flying, but it's still incredibly cool to look out the window down the wing line of that, that black bat wing and, and just realize what you're doing. So one of the things I was reading about the B2 just the other day in preparation was about the incredible length of some of these sorties, right? I, I think that some of them go 40, 70 hours on the sortie, you'll fly to the other side of the world and back. That's pretty intense. I mean, even our long haul guys, you know, maybe like a 14 hour flight and there's multiple crews, uh, very different. Yep. The, um, so if we were to fly, say we went to Operation Odyssey Dawn in Libya and uh, we did Kosovo in the late 90s, we were the first ones into Afghanistan in 2001 after 9-11 and the first ones in, or amongst the first ones into Iraq in 2003. And so for those missions, we took off from Whiteman Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And then you can get over to, say, uh, Libya um, and back in about 30 hours or so. <clears throat> the longest flight ever, however, was going into Afghanistan after 9-11. So that we took off from Missouri, went west. So, you know, the rest of the way across the country, okay. across the Pacific, right? If you look at a globe, the Pacific Ocean is almost half the globe. Going to the other world. Yeah, all the way across the Pacific and then across Asia, down around through Thailand into the Indian Ocean, then up through Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh -huh. and, and and that was like 30 some hours. And then they had to go eight hours out and landed in Diego Garcia, an island in the Indian Ocean. So that was a 46 hour mission was the longest mission. Uh, 46 so that, yeah. So that's like you getting in an airplane right now and we <laughs> all go eat dinner and then we go to sleep and then we get up and have breakfast and go to school and we have dinner again and then go to sleep again and then get up and, and eat breakfast and go to school. And then you land. That's wow. how long a 46 hour mission is. And it's uh, just two pilots. There's a really small space behind with a toilet that has a lid over it. So you can put stuff on it and just barely enough space to lay down. So you can take an hour nap maybe on wow. that. And now FAIKO rules are that, you know, over a certain amount of time, you have to have an augmented crew. So instead of two pilots, you have to have three. Then right. over another, uh, a certain amount of time, you have to have four pilots. So you, the right. entire crew can go back and nap for four hours while the other crew takes over. Yeah. So we have waivers to those rules to allow us to just have two pilots for the duration of that flight. So really, you're, it's, it's, it sounds like it's mostly about endurance. You're like a marathon runner of a pilot, right? Yeah, that is endurance for sure. I mean, yeah, especially at my age, it's been a long time since I pulled all-nighters in college and with buddies and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so we, it's all about just getting good sleep, eating right, you know, mm -hmm. drinking some caffeine and taking a nap and managing your sleep cycles. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. So, I mean, speaking about that crew rest kind of rules, I was talking to one of our alumni who's now flying for uh, Atlas Cargo and uh, doing the Pacific and doing like Narita and Sydney and all these kind of things and about the multiple crews and they rotate through and, you know, how it's actually, you know, pretty sweet <laughs> and, uh, and they have a good time of it. Um, you know, as long as they don't get you know, too much weather, things like that. But talk about the opposite of it. It's really pushing the edge of, I think, what a, a human being can do, uh, who is like the, the brain and soul of this airplane, uh, flying right. to the other side of the world 
doing their mission, um, but, but not flying back. So they landed in the Indian Ocean before uh, having a return flight. That's interesting. Yeah, they landed at Diego Garcia. Uh, it's owned by uh, the UK, by Great Britain. And uh, they kept the engines running and the crews got out and another crew got in and flew oh. the airplane home. They oh, wow. that crew. So is that because like the, the aircraft itself is so uh, so specialized, so 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 special really that they're always in the US. They're not allowed to kind of stay anywhere else. Right. It has to do with yeah, the security of it as well as the just the maintenance requirements of the stealth characteristics, as well as weapons loading and other things that made it uh, need to come back home. Sure. Well, very specialized if they're working on the B2. Really interesting. Uh you might not be at liberty to share, but I mean, are there any any special missions you can think of or anything that anything that was interesting in your time you spent uh, with the Air Force or with the B2 program? Well, for me with the B2, I had one flight from Diego. So, you know, we haven't gone to war a whole lot. We're not used in the Middle East very often. So we haven't seen a lot of combat, but I got to fly from Diego Garcia home. So that last leg, that was 29 hours for me. And if you look at a globe, Diego Garcia, if you go around the Pacific Ocean, it's actually 13 time zones. It's a long way around. (laughs) And you can't park near the poles because that would take us through countries we don't want to take the B2. So I got to do that. And then last fall, I flew on a a mission over the North Pole. So that was a 20-hour flight over the North Pole and a little bit towards the other other end to show uh, our would-be adversaries what we can do and synchronize with some other aircraft as well from all parts of the globe. So that was really, really neat, really cool, really eerie flying over the North Pole. When you realize how big it is up there and over the North Pole, if we had, a say, an engine fire, mm-hmm. it would be a four-hour drive, wow. a four-hour flight from there to the, get to the nearest emergency landing field. Interesting. Yeah, the world is massive. And it's one of those things that, um, that I think pilots have a, a unique, unique visibility on, right? Uh, when you're at ground level, you know, you look at the space around you, even uh local pilots all right you get a better idea of it but when you're at altitude seeing the horizon looking out over the ocean uh it just definitely gives you a different perspective absolutely different perspective yeah so let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about aspiring pilots people that maybe want to get to the air force or are interested in kind of going that route um what should somebody be doing now you know if you're in high school or in college and uh you're thinking this might be something i want to do Okay. Uh, now for all of you out there, I don't, it all depends on what I say and how you receive this will be dependent on where you are in life, how old you are, how much you've, you've gone to inspirational, motivational speakers <laughs> and such. Uh, Cause I'm not into cheesy things, but I'm going to say some things that might appear cheesy depending on your, appear, uh, uh, you know, your perspective, but work with all your heart at everything you do. Right. So if you haven't heard that, then this is a golden nugget for you. If you have heard it, then I need to reinforce it. And if you've heard it a dozen times, then just remind yourself that it's important. Work it with all your heart, whatever you do, because anything you do, if you're swinging a hammer, framing houses, if you do that with all your heart, as hard as you can, that will make you the person you need to be to become a fighter pilot or a B-2 stealth bomber pilot. I am telling you, it is not what you know or who you know, it is your character that will make you get to where you want to go because you can't fake it. You can't cram the night before for life it is all about developing who you are as a person. There, how was that for a bowl of cheesiness? But I mean, no, next, you really gotta do your best. You gotta, you gotta throw yourself into the work. You know, I've got two boys in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts, and what's their motto? Try your best. You know, the Cub Scouts, try your best, <laughs> right? Yeah, there was a study done on toddlers, 
And when they learned the alphabet, because now you guys aren't there yet, but you have toddlers, parents want their kids to learn the alphabet. Oh, look, my kid's only 18 months old and he's saying the alphabet. There is no correlation to how early a kid knows the alphabet and their success in life measured by crime or salary. The correlations, nor, nor on elementary school grades, uh, the core, there is a correlation to their ability to handle stress and conflict and get along well with other people at those young ages. There is a correlation with that and success sure. in adult life, which leads me to another one is in integrity. Get it if you don't have it. Uh, I don't know where <laughs> they sell it, but you got to get it. Um, it goes right along with working really hard at whatever you do. Yeah. Here's another slightly different one, but interesting that I would say is if you can split from the masses, split from the norm, split from the wave of what is popular, there's a pretty good chance you will end up on a path for success. Because generally speaking, what happens, what happens if you were like, hey, it's Friday night, let's go to the movies. And you're like, oh, I want to read The Far Aim, right? Like a nerd, you know, and I'm not saying you have to read The Far Aim on Friday night, but, but like, uh, Einstein sat under a tree and read math books. That was out of the norm. There's a certain norm that we're expected to do with our Saturdays and with our Saturday nights and how we're supposed to act and walk and the things that are supposed to be cool to us and be fun. Mm -hmm. And like my kids, they're in one sport. I'm trying to teach them piano. And that's pretty much the norm. But if you want to be super good at one thing, you may not do those things that are the norm. And we throw kids into a, a classroom in public school with a whole bunch of other 17 year olds. Well, what's your influence then? It's all these other 17 year olds. Sure. Don't be afraid to break away from them and, and seek, you know, elderly wisdom. Uh, I knew a guy in college that was awesome at guitar and he he broke from the norm. He spent his Saturday nights practicing guitar. Van right. Halen, another example. You know, let's um, take a moment there because, you know, pilots are kind of a rare breed, right? Uh, two, less than 2% of the people in the country have even a private pilot's license, right? And so, you know, when you get to your instrument or commercial, you're a fraction of a percent, especially around the world. In the yeah. U.S., it's relatively uh, easy to, to go to your local flight school, local airport, watch airplanes, you know, meet a pilot, go for that discovery flight that I was talking about. If you're sitting in India or Peru or some of like that, it's a whole other world. It seems almost impossible, right? Yeah. So uh, it's a very special thing. So when, when I find, like I mentioned that a young person that kind of has that clarity vision, like I want to do this, man, yeah. you got to follow that lane. But I don't think it, you'll be happy doing anything else. Yeah. And I agree with you. I was thinking about that was I was thinking about this break from the norm concept is by virtue of being where you are right now, watching this video and being a student uh, in aviation, you already are breaking that norm in America because it's not the typical thing. Like every boy in America plays baseball or something like that, but they don't offer aviation classes in most high schools. So you have to go out on your own and have this unique interest and pursue it. So you're already going down that path. Yeah. You know, I have to say that there's actually quite a big um, kind of outreach happening for younger people to come into aviation because of the pilot shortage. I know the airports has their pilot shortage as well. Uh, it's, you know, the industry being where it is, it kind of got put on pause, but it's going to come back super strong. And we're already hearing from our airline partners that they want to open up the hiring right away. And so Embry-Riddle and AOPA have these great programs where they're putting out curriculums into the high schools. We had Embry-Riddle uh, brought over 20 odd, 22 high school students for discovery flights about a month ago. Wow. And man, really interesting what they're doing out there. It's a, kind of a free curriculum. They're looking a lot at drones and kind of a little bit broader than just pilots, right? Drones, maintenance, air traffic control, kind of a general kind of aviation orientation. Uh, 
But you're right. In 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 small town USA, in most places, there you know there really isn't uh, somebody exposing you to this. Now that's probably one of the benefits of the internet is that somebody can stumble across a video like this, right, uh, and get advice from a, from a pilot like yourself. Um, you know, reach out in forums and kind of see what makes sense and and how they can do it. Where in the past that just wasn't available. So um, you know, people got interested in aviation sitting outside of the local airport fence and watching the airplanes take off, right? Or our remote control airplanes is a great way that people got into airplanes back in the day. Uh, now it's a lot of Microsoft Flight Simulator and uh, and the internet is doing quite a bit to, to get people's attention of, of what they're interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And now, um, you know, so, you know, that type of advice that I just gave then is not often what some people are looking for. They're looking for the gold nuggets. And that's, sure. you know, part of my theme is there is no golden nugget. Nope. But if you're looking for the practical advice, you know, like, okay, well, what do I do tomorrow? It's just, you're probably already doing it. And that is go get your, go get your private pilot's license, mm -hmm. get some hours, study real hard in school. And then if you want to go the route I did, then you um, research online. Uh, initially, you could talk to a recruiter as well. Uh, on how to apply for the Air Force Academy or ROTC, or just go get, or you can go to OTS. Now, let's talk a moment about this pilot shortage that I mentioned a moment ago, right? Because the Air Force is, is in a pilot shortage, and they, you know, a lot of those Air Force pilots have moved into commercial aviation. That's kind of a classic route, right? You know, uh, pilot gets great training, you know, builds up their time, leadership, college educated. The airlines love you guys, and they have the restricted ATP down at 700 hours for you guys. Uh, to kind of trying to entice you over. Um, that's kind of a constant turnover. I mean, I guess people do their 20 years. Is that typical service in the Air Force? Uh, it's usually, so yeah, that's where you need to go to get your partial retirement. Um, if uh, you're in your commitment after pilot training is 10 years. So that would be oh. if you had a year of pilot training, about 11 or 12 years is when you can first get out of the Air Force. All right, that's that's less than I thought, honestly. Um, and then you've got kind of a, a variety of, of training. Like I know, for example, and we talked about this with you the other day, certain airlines like Delta have a very strong military tradition. I think most airlines have a good contingent of military pilots. I don't know why Delta is so heavy on military pilots. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a flow that's proven itself pretty well. And so the Air Force is constantly recruiting in. Um, and they're making quite a big effort to keep pilots as well, right? Uh, retention bonuses and things like that. Um, I mean, at what point, I mean, where is the Air Force now in its recruiting? Is it always kind of out there in need of pilots? Is it looking more at drones and things like that? Where is the Air Force in that? Yeah, the Air Force definitely needs a lot of pilots at every level. Mm -hmm. And so some of it is retention, trying to entice them with bonuses and some other quality of life types of things. They, uh, But it's not just the retention to keeping the pilots. They need to be able to train them faster as well. So they're doing things to improve the speed with which we train uh, and the capacity of how many pilots we can train in the Air Force also. And they're experimenting with some unique ideas. You know, we've been very um, methodical, like I said, about having this 13-month pilot training, and this is the way we do it. We're exploring, can we take somebody who has 300 hours at a aviation flight school and or flew for the regionals or something and give them a shorter pilot training? We're exploring some ideas like that. But it is a challenge continually, and it's kind of just the military business model where we keep people flowing through and then kick them out the back door that makes us required, uh, makes gives us the requirement to continually train more and put them through the pipeline. Makes sense. And uh, we're kind of coming to the end of our time, so I'm looking at Q&A, and the first question from NASA 
is uh Tashwala Nasa is your take on the retention issue. <laughs> so uh tackle that one. Uh basically that the Air Force needs pilots, right? So if you've ever had that dream, you should apply, right? You should give it a go. Um it's a good one. And Mr. Jerry Kirby here asked if you fly privately and if you plan to after your retirement. I've only flown a little bit privately. So after I got my private pilot's license before going to pilot training, I didn't fly for years. And I got a few hours in the Cessna 2 to get my dad and my wife. Uh, a few years later, I, t- I took up my kids. So I haven't done a whole lot. I want to do a little bit more this summer. And yeah, I want to keep that as a hobby for sure. And maybe get in, uh, start instructing on the private pilot's kind of less level. Beautiful. You know, as someone who's very involved with the flight school here, Wayne Mini Aviation Academy, uh, we're always looking for senior pilots, you know, whether you're retired Air Force or airline or 135, uh, because the, the the way the industry works is, you know, students, the best students step into instructor roles, you know, to build their time, kind of like a residency, right? But you really need those senior pilots to keep the standards like you were just talking about, right? The Air Force is very good about having kind of career instructors, I imagine, right? Where they're like the guy at the, at the flight academy and, and focuses on this or that or the other. Um, but in the world of in the world of commercial aviation, uh, it's hard to get those senior people because they're off flying for the airlines doing really well. And here's the funny part, a guy at 65 who's got 20,000 hours and all the experience in the world comes back to GA and they've got to learn how to fly by hand again. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty tough. I can say the, the F-15 and the B-2 were both pretty easy to land. And uh, the first time back in the Cessna 152 was a little shock for me because you felt every bump and you really had to be proactive to get that thing online. So here's a question. You mentioned about the B-2, you know, kind of being, uh, you know, kind of older and it's time now. What's the automation like in a B-2? Is it like computers and servos? Is it modern automation? Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's all fly by wire, all fly by computers. Okay. It was designed in the eighties. It's got dozens and dozens of computers on it. If you count every box, it does a calculation and sends an output. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, uh, based on its, it's air, it's aerodynamic, right? It doesn't have a tail. Right. So it's not aerodynamically stable. So it is entirely dependent on the computers to tell it where to put the control surfaces. Mm-hmm. You're not your stick. Your stick is just an input to the computer. Oh. <laughs> and <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we have four flight control computers for quad redundancy. Wow. Um, now, again, it came it came to life in uh, 1990 or 1989. I think was the first flight, and uh, at the time, it was a obviously an incredible marvel of glass cockpit. And uh, now we only paid for we did get uh, autopilot that it'll follow a blue line or follow a heading, sure. and we got um, altitude hold as well. Uh, we do not have auto throttles though. We didn't pay for that. So we have to keep the throttles up and down. Okay. Altitude hold on a 40 plus hour mission. Sounds like great. I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> right. Heading. That's great. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, we're coming to the end of our time, Tim. It's been so wonderful having you here. Uh, you kind of shared our words of wisdom, but if you had any parting thoughts or if anybody wants to reach out to you, uh, you know, what's the best way to kind of pursue the air force or any last thoughts you have to give to our viewers? Uh, I think, I think I, Hopefully you got something out of this and uh, enjoyed it as well. The B2, uh, yeah, it is, is super cool. It's uh, I wake up every day and go, wow, this is pretty, pretty cool. I'm doing something I'd see on Discovery Channel. Yeah. <laughs> one, thing, one thing you didn't ask, people ask how fast it goes, a little slower than the airliner, how high it goes, you know, think about like an airliner. Yeah. Uh, what you didn't ask was how do we eat, sleep, and poop? 
on a so 40 you told me about the tiny you told me about the tiny toilet which yeah <laughs> right never, yeah. never spend time in an rv we had know. a hot we have a hot cup too but we uh we got an upgrade to a microwave so oh you have a yeah. microwave on board <laughs> yeah that's about it nothing like the c17 but wow. yeah i appreciate you having me on here and i hope uh good luck to all you guys out there and what you're pursuing whatever that path is uh like uh Waylon was saying whether it's in the jet, in the aircraft still, or going to another career field that's related or not. Uh, and if it's just for enjoyment, or if you're going down the path to civilian aviation or military aviation, I hope you work at it with all your heart and enjoy all that you do. Thank you so much for giving us time this afternoon. Uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Sutton. And uh, make sure to look into the Air Force. It's the best flight school in the country, right? And a great way great. to launch your career uh, into the skies. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Have a great afternoon. This series is brought to you by Wayman Aviation Academy. Learn to fly with a safe, reliable, professional academy located between Miami and Fort Lauderdale in sunny South Florida, USA. Enjoy the training and cosmopolitan life with Wayman's 42 aircraft, six airline partners, and two bases to help you be the captain.